Please turn with me in your Bible back to the book of Ephesians in chapter 4 this time. Last Sunday, we covered the first 16 verses of the chapter, and we're planning to cover the last half of the chapter today. I'm going to read the passage for us, and then we will uh, give an overview of where we are heading today. So this is God's Word, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And I'm just going to add the next two verses from chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I've heard a story I may have shared, it. I think I've shared it at some point in the past. There was a Christian couple who were going to be adopting, I believe it was two boys from a Russian orphanage and these two boys from the description lived in absolutely horrific conditions. It's one of those things it's hard to really fathom hundreds of these children without parents in this just in horrible conditions of this orphanage. And this couple made arrangements and went through the whole legal process and finally they were able to legally adopt their children. They signed the statements, everything was official, it was declared, they were able to fly their children home to America, and the children's lives obviously are going to change forever in a dramatic way that goes beyond anything that those young boys could, could even fathom. Part of the story that I think I've mentioned before is that when the children first were living in their home after coming back from the Russian orphanage, for a period of months, the parents found that these two young boys, they were not infants, they were, they were, they were a little older than that, they kept, after meals, they kept finding that the children were hiding food in their pockets after mealtime was over because they did not know if they were going to get their next meal because up to this point in their life, there was never a guarantee that they would get their next meal. And so because there was excess food on the table, they would take it and they would hide it in their pockets because they did not yet fully trust their new mom and dad. They did not truly fully understand that they were not going to go hungry. They had no real fear or worry about that. What was happening in that story? 
as, it's, it's an emotional thing to think about, but what's happening in that story is clearly these two boys had a complete, dramatic, decisive, and legal change in their status. They have a new last name, and they have a completely new future, and everything about their life has just changed whether they even fully comprehend it or not. It's a different world that they are living in than the world that they had been living in before. I think we can all understand that. But what had changed? What was different about this new world? What was different about it was these children now, with their change of status, they had not yet fully adjusted to this new lifestyle, and they were not yet living as who they really were. They, they had to actually learn to behave according to their new status. That did not come naturally. That was something that they had to learn over time. This passage is about something very similar. It is about how a change in status should lead to a change in lifestyle and a change in behavior. A change in status should lead to a change in lifestyle that leads to a change in behavior. So I've titled the sermon, Off with the Old and On with the New. And I have three points. Point number one is to put off the old self, which is verses 17 through 19. Point number two is put on the new self, verses 20 to 23. And point number three was five practical examples of this kind of lifestyle, which is verses 25 to 32. Essentially, what you'll see in this text is that Paul is going to lay out here the basic parameters of what's going on of the new status change, and he's going to tell you, listen, you need to become who you really are in Christ. You need to take off the old, and you need to put on the new. And then he's going to give us five practical uh, examples or applications of what that actually looks like in our day-to-day life. So let's begin here with the first point, which is to put off the old self. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that the outline is a little bit… My outline is not perfect because the verse doesn't go, the passage doesn't go in perfect order with my point, so I'm going to have to jump around a little bit, but the basic outline, the first point is the first few verses, 17 to 19, to put off the old self. Let me read those verses again for us here. And this is a depressing description. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, this is a depressing list. I I want to say something here. When when you come across these so-called sort of discouraging, depressing sections where the Scripture will just tell you how evil the human nature is, don't look away. Don't say, oh, I came to be uplifted. What are we doing talking about such a negative list? Well, let's, let's focus on this because this is who all of us are in some sense by nature. All of us. There, it, we don't need to think here in terms of the good people and the bad people. We need to think of, in terms of there's one group of people. It's called we're all born fallen in Adam. We're all, born, we're all born sinful and fallen in Adam. And we desperately need God's grace to change us from this description here in this passage. So with the first one here, let's look at verse 17. It says that they walk, the Gentiles, in the futility of their minds. Now that word futile is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament book Ecclesiastes. It's normally vanity in a lot of translations. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the teacher. And it seems as though what uh, the author Solomon is getting at there is the idea that Life apart from the fear of God is ultimately futile and truly lacking true meaning. 
I mean, just to, to, just to, to be really negative. If what you are living for is not eternal, it is futile. If what you are living for is not eternal, it is worthless, ultimately. If what you have staked your life on is something that one day will not exist, I say this humbly, you are living like a fool because you are living for something that ultimately cannot sustain. People who live for a particular accomplishment, career achievement, they, they, they get that Olympic gold medal, they win the Oscar, they get the first place, they have the highest grade, the best SAT score, they get into the best college. If that is the ultimate goal of why I'm alive, that is futility because even from the secular perspective, one day we're all going to be gone. And one day we will all be forgotten if that is true. And so if what I'm living for is temporary, it is ultimately futile. Let's look at verse 18. This is the old self that we must put off. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This reminds me so much. I know the Romans Sunday School just went through Romans 1 recently. You don't have to turn there. Romans 1, you can almost apply any, any text of Scripture. It takes you back to Romans 1. Listen to what Paul says in a similar kind of passage. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God that's something eternal, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then he says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. A very similar train of thought is going on here in Ephesians 4. Let's continue here. It says in verse 18 that they are alienated from the life of God. Let's, let's turn back to Ephesians 2. Another extremely important passage many of us are very familiar with. Just look at that first verse describing us in our pre-Christ condition, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then it says, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So if I am not yet someone who knows Christ, I am spiritually dead to what is most important, which is Jesus Himself. I am not alive to God. I am instead alienated from the life of God. Also in Ephesians 2, if, you're, if you can still look at that, look at verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is where we were. Much worse than being in an orphanage, we were spiritually cut off from the living God. We were without hope and without God in the world, and we were living for the things God has made rather than living for the maker of those things, God Himself. And look again at Ephesians 4, 18. I'm going to read this verse again. They are darkened in their understanding... Let me, let me just pause on that. I, I want to say a word about darkened in their understanding. You can watch the news all day long, and you can watch, at times, 
not always, but at times, very intelligent people, and they're presenting the facts, at least they say. You know, sometimes you're like, is this biased? Is this caricatured? But they're trying to present what's happening. And someone can tell you all about world events. This person could be a great scholar and have multiple PhDs, and they could be a historian. They could understand all kinds of issues about the world and the, the economy and geopolitical powers, and they could talk on and on and on and on. And they could unleash all kinds of information, and much of it could be generally true. It's possible. But if that person does not know the one true God and does not refer all things back to the one true God, then they are ultimately, as intelligent as they may be, in the most important part of life where everything finds its source and meaning, they are darkened. They're walking around in spiritual darkness. They don't have the light of God's Word to guide them in these kinds of issues. And verse 18 goes on to say, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of of their heart. You say, well, if someone's ignorant, how can you blame them? This is not ignorance like you may not know how many miles there are from here to the other side of the Atlantic Ocean or something. This is not one of those kinds of things. This is ignorance about spiritual realities that we are willfully and culpably ignorant of. And the ignorance is due not to a lack of information, but due to what? Our hardness of heart. Once you get down past the futility, the darkness, the alienation, the ignorance, at the very rock bottom foundation, what's the problem with humanity? It is a hardened heart that does not care to love the things concerning Christ, not interested in Jesus except perhaps as a historical figure to debate, but not actually loving the Lord Jesus. There is a hardness of heart. It's much like Romans 1 where there's a suppression of the truth coming from unrighteousness. What is the result of this mindset? Verse 19 begins to work backwards from the hard heart and tells us how this shows itself in behavior. Verse 19, they have become callous. That's the same, right, as a hard heart is a calloused heart. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, it is not true that all of us in our lost state We're just given over in some outrageous way to, for instance, sexual immorality. But it certainly was true for many, and that is very normal amongst the secular world, to give yourself over when you're cut off from Christ to a greedy, calloused passion for impurity and sensuality. Look look with me here at, um, look at chapter 5, right next to chapter 4. Verse 3 picks up the same kind of idea. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now here is the truth, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, we got one more piece of the really bad news, okay? So, here's one more piece of the bad news. Look with me at verse 22 of chapter 4. Paul says, we need to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. I personally have thought about those two words for some odd reason for a long time. I don't know why, but that phrase has stuck with me for a long time. I remember years ago picking up Matthew Henry's wonderful commentary from what, over 300 years ago now, and I opened to this passage, and Matthew Henry has this beautifully written sentence where he said, deceitful desires. These are desires that promise men happiness, but render them the more miserable. They promise you happiness. That's why they're desires, right? That's what desire, desire is about, trying to find joy, happiness. They're desires. Here, come here and you will find satisfaction. And yet, when you actually go there and you drink deeply of that well, you find that it is not what actually quenches your thirst. I read a story as I was preparing for this sermon. I believe it was from Brian Chapel, I think. And it was speaking about uh, one of the ships that was crossing the Pacific at the end of, the world, uh, end of World War II, one of the United States ships, and it was torpedoed. And the ship began to sink. And they were out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, shark-infested waters. Some of you may remember this story. And hundreds of men died very quickly, but I think it was over 600 men made it into the waters. Uh, and they were, they were on the, in the waters for five nights and four days, just floating, waiting to be rescued or to die. Uh, there, there were sharks nearby, and these men were deliriously thirsty. So they're bobbing in the water all day and all night. And one of the older men who survived, he survived the whole thing and made it out alive. Only a couple hundred people, I think, survived the whole thing. Most people died throughout this process. But this older man who was in the water, he said, especially some of the younger men out there floating were getting very tempted to drink the seawater. The seawater was clear, it looked pure, and they were ravenously thirsty. The sun was beating down on them all day. They had not had a drink in days, and some of them were beginning to hallucinate. And he said he actually would swim over to men who would begin to drink the water, and he would begin to hit them so that they would wake up and say, listen, you're going to die. If you drink that water, you are going to become more thirsty because the salt in the water is going to absorb the water within you. You're going to become more thirsty. The more you drink that water, the more you're going to get sick. The more you get sick, the less you're going to be able to swim. You are going to die right here for sure if you drink that water. And he said it was crazy because men would look down at the water and all day long they're just staring at this beautiful looking water and they're just dying for, for some drink. And they, so many of them began to drink and many died in that very process. And Brian Chapel said, listen, the world offers you so much that looks like life. It's like Eve talking to the serpent, looking at that fruit. It's desirable. It's attractive. It looks good. It feels right. It, it's desirable to make one wise. It looks juicy and delicious. This looks wonderful. I'm going to take it and I'm going to eat it. And what happened in that moment is that Eve believed her eyes and what they saw more than God's word and what it said. And because she put her faith in her sight, not in what she had heard from God, she gave in and Adam followed right with her and, and gave in and they ate of that fruit. And the unimaginable devastation that came as a result came afterwards. We live in a culture that thinks statements like deceitful desires is an oxymoron. In our culture, desires that come from within are innately and inherently virtuous and good. As you know right now, it's unfolding the last couple weeks, I don't get into the news that much, but it's sometimes in the world we live in, things are so crazy, you have to say something at some point. Disney, do you know where I'm going, is, is saying, listen, I watched a leak, several leaked videos from different uh, people who have influence in the corporation of Disney. The last couple of weeks, one woman said, I, in Disney, have a not very subtle gay agenda for these movies. And I'm trying to slip in 
queerness, I'm trying, she said, the, her words were, I'm trying to put queerness everywhere in our Disney materials for these children. I want to see same-sex kisses on screen. So the new Lightyear, the, the, the Buzz Lightyear movie, you know, the Toy Story spinoff is coming out and they had edited out uh, one of those scenes. Now they've edited it back into the final release of the movie so that four-year-olds can see this on the big screen. That, th- this is very rapidly where our world is heading right now. And, and the, the worldview is saying this, four-year-old boy and girl, seven-year-old boy and girl, you need to look within your heart. You need to find the desires that within you are truly yourself. And the world's going to say these are primarily about gender and sex. And whatever your desires tell you about what you feel like you are in your gender or what you feel like you might be one day attracted to sexually, whatever those desires are, are more important than your biology. They're more important than what anyone around you may say. They're certainly more important than what a so-called dusty book called the Bible might say. And if you suppress those desires, you are destroying your authentic self. A virtuous and honorable character today is a character who looks within, finds the either gender or sexual desires that are strongest, and lives them out against what anyone around them tells them to do. And these are the desires that are supposed to be the authentic you, the true you, the best version of yourself. And if you have to change your biology, which is not truly something you can do, but if you can try to change your biology or whatever you may need to do to match with those desires, you need to do it. I'm just being completely honest here. If you are under the age of 22, and certainly if you're a teenager or younger, you right now are growing up with something that the rest of us did not experience anywhere near to the degree to which you guys are experiencing this. So to the parents in the room, we have a massive fight on our hands here to make sure that our children grow up with a biblical worldview and we are not deceived by deceitful desires. This is why children should be taught God's word by mom and dad. And dad, you have a special responsibility in that as head of the home, to make sure God's word is opened with your children, to make sure, I mean, this may sound strange to some of you, but even catechizing your children, which has fallen out of style, so that they know a definition of prayer. They know that there are three persons in the one true God, right? Because they've, they've been catechized what the Trinity is. What, what is God? He has three persons in one God. What is sin? It is, a, it is a breaking of God's commands. What is God's judgment? What is the atonement? Who is Jesus? He is fully God and fully man. Our children need a biblical worldview so badly because the world that they are facing even is going to have Disney movies saying things that are just would have been considered outrageous by anyone a couple decades ago. So if there has ever been a time to call people to say, let's get ready to prepare younger people for the world that we are going to live in, it it is right now. It it is time to get to work because there is a whole lot on our hands and we want to be an alternate world within our world. We want this church to be a different kind of way of doing life than the city around us. Not because we're better than anybody else, but because God has been gracious to us and we want other people to see the light and the grace of God that is true when we actually failingly, but to some degree, follow his instructions for our life. People can see, oh my goodness, I thought Christians were a bunch of hate-mongering people, and they were misogynistic and homophobic, and da 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 But when I actually get around them, man, they're actually gracious to each other. They're actually loving. They have joy. They really believe God's word. They actually want to live it out. They actually confess their sins to each other. They actually don't think they're better than me. They actually think that they're worse. They, they talk about their pre-converted life and how evil their heart is and how much they need the grace of God. These people are different from the caricature I was told. Maybe there's something to what they have to offer. Maybe there's something here. And I think the darker it gets, the brighter this church can actually be. Because things will be, we, we will be so different, not, to, not for different sake, just by trying to be faithful to God's word. We're going to look so different 
from our friends and our colleagues and our coworkers, people in our apartment building and dorm room. We're going to look so different. It's all the more of a time where the difference can show and be attractive to at least some that we know. And so I, I want to say very clearly that the desires that are within us are desires that we should not trust. We should not trust our heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, you know this verse? The heart is deceptive above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? What we need to show is that we should not trust our desires. We should trust God's word and we should ask God, listen, this is for all of us, all of us. We should ask God to conform our desires and our affections so that they are in line with God and his word, not so that we live in contradiction of God and his word. Um, So what do we need to put off here? We need to put off this former manner of life. We don't want to be like those kids stuffing the the, the food into our pockets because we don't actually believe our new status. We are saved, called, redeemed, forgiven, loved, accepted in Christ because of his substitutionary atonement for us. That's who we are. If you're a Christian, you are not forgotten. You're not a nobody. You were chosen by Almighty God. You were picked by name. He knows all about you and he cares about you more than you could possibly understand. He sent his one and only son to take your place, to absorb your wrath so that you could be forever saved and know this God. This God loves, cares about you, has not forgotten you and wants what is best for you. And God is pleading with you and me, take off the clothes of your old life. The habits and the ways of acting when you were in the orphanage of the world. Stop with that. You can trust your father to provide. You can trust your father's counsel and word. Take off the clothes of the former manner of life. That's point number one. Point number two, put on the new self. This is verses 20 to 23. So look with me at verses, excuse me, 20 to 24. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The answer here is not simply to break bad habits, and I think, I think this is often misunderstood. You know, you'll have people say, well, I'm just trying to do better. You know, I'm trying to do this and that. This is not about simply breaking bad habits by trying harder. This is about, by the empowering of God's grace, casting aside our old life and putting on a brand new life. I've mentioned this before. You know this parable Jesus tells about the house with the demonic spirit living in it? And the demonic spirit leaves the house And he gets seven of his best friends, all demons, and the demonic spirit comes back to the home with his seven demonic friends, and they find that the house has been swept. It's orderly. It's been put back together. Looks like they've been doing some cleaning. This house looks great. And the demon says, this is the house I want to live in with my friends. And all demons, all the demons go occupy that house. That is a metaphor for a human soul, a human person, the house. And the idea is there was a demon involved in this person's life, and the demon left. While the demon was gone, the person got religion. They got morality. 
They got resolutions to obey and be decent people, right? They got, they got that. So what happened was they cleaned up their life. Literally, the house was cleaned and swept. They, they got good kind of moral behaviors outwardly going, but they did not have the new self of Christ put on them. They did not have the spirit living in them. They did not have the, the new Christian life happening. All they had was a halfway religion. They had tried to put off, but they had not yet put on Christ. Do you see? And so when the demon comes back and says, oh, you're a Pharisee, basically. Your life is swept. You've got morality, but you don't have Jesus. This is our favorite place to live. Seven of my buddies are coming to occupy this home. Paul does not want that to happen. Paul says, yes, put off your old life, but also you have to put on the new life in Christ. If we just put off the old self and we don't put on the new self, we will be left in the state that Jesus describes in that parable. Let me just mention here St. Augustine from the 300s or so, Augustine of Hippo. He was not converted until he was in his, I believe, his early 30s. Unbelievably brilliant. Some of his theology is way off base if you go look at it. Some of it is absolutely wonderful, depending on where you read. But Augustine still was a great gift to the church in many ways. And if you remember his conversion story, he had been a slave to this passage's sins. Sexual immorality was his thing. He was living with various women he was not married to, especially one in particular. His wife, excuse me, his, his mom had been praying for him to be converted. Nothing had happened. And over time, he was becoming, he was being tormented by the thoughts of his sins. And he knew one day he needed to let go of it. But he said he could not let go today. It was always tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'll get serious about my relationship with Jesus. Not today. I want one more day with my sin. And there's this famous moment that he writes about in his, I believe, in his confessions. If you remember the story, he is outside in a little garden area, and he has a little collection of Paul's letters that, have been sit, that are sitting nearby. And he's got this inner battle going on. Maybe you've experienced this inner battle where you're sitting. You remember the cartoons where you have like the, the demon and the angel on the shoulders talking? It's like that kind of thing, right? You've got your, you know, the Holy Spirit is, is convicting him, and yet his flesh is screaming, don't let me go. That's the battle, okay? So he says he was in the garden. He was knocking his hands and his head on his knees. He was tormented. He was hitting himself over the head like he was, he was about to lose it. He didn't know what to do. And he said all he could hear was his sin saying to him like, a, like an unchaste woman, like this, this promiscuous woman looking at him in this vision saying, never again, never again. You're going to say no to me, and you're never again going to get to taste my pleasures and my delights. Never again. And he said the word never was haunting him. He did not want to give it up forever, but he did want to give it up eventually, and he didn't know what to do. And so in the midst of this struggle, he said he heard a small either boy or girl, he doesn't even know the gender, a young child nearby was singing tole lege, take and read, take up and read. And he said he'd never heard a child's song that had those words in it. So he immediately hopped up and just said, okay, I'm going to go get my collection of Paul's letters. And I'm just going to take it and I'm going to read. He grabbed the epistles. He flipped them open to a random place. This is not usually the way you should do Bible study, by the way. But this is what he did. He flipped to a random page. And these are the words that he read. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lusts. That's what he read. And guess what happened? He was converted right there. His heart changed fundamentally. His life changed completely. He became a brand new human being, and everything followed after that with so much of the Augustine that we now know from history happened in that turn where he said, okay, I'm putting off the old. I'm now going to put on Jesus Christ. I'm going to put on the new. 
Ephesians 4, by the way, that was the end of Romans 13, if you were wondering. That was Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. The last section of today's passage is very practical. Paul walks through, I'm going to say five, you could argue it's six, but I'm going to say five different things that we can do to put off and to put on, and we will walk through these one by one. Verse 25, Ephesians 4, 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, there's put off, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, neighbor, for we are members one of another. There is the put on. So don't just cut up, cut, cut lying out. You want to actually use truth to bless and speak to your neighbors. We need to think about this. Are there areas in our life where we are not speaking truthfully? Are there areas in our life where we are saying things that are not quite true or slightly exaggerated or perhaps largely exaggerated? Are, are we trustworthy in that regard? Or are we regularly bending and breaking the truth? In at work, when your boss asks you about something you haven't done, but you can get it done really quick if he's not around, do you say, oh yeah, I've pretty much finished it, when you haven't started it? Where are we in terms of truth-telling? We as Christians should be known for the truth. And when we fail, we should confess that, and we should repent, and we should move forward, and we should speak the truth with our neighbor, because we are members one of another. Number two, verse 26 and 27, anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, this has often puzzled people because this is, is this a command? Be angry? It's a strange command. I do think what Paul is saying here is, listen, anger is one of these ones where it can be good or it can be bad, but for most of us, most of the time, it's bad. And even this, even righteous anger, which is a legitimate thing, Right? Don't tell me Jesus was not angry when he was in the temple in John 2, when he fashioned a whip, flipped the tables and the coins of the money changers over, and drove the oxen and the other animals out of the temple, saying, this is, my, this is the house of prayer for the, for the Father. There was holy and righteous anger in Jesus. But here's the key. Even righteous anger should not be left to fester into unrighteous anger. Don't let the anger of today bleed into and affect the relationships of tomorrow. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but let us be quick to leave it aside and let us not let it fester inside of us and let us even not let the sun go down on our anger. Now, let's, 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 let, me press, uh, let me press this here. Let's not take the phrase, let the sun, do not let the sun go down, hyper-literally, okay? Because I don't know about you, maybe you got a roommate or a spouse and it's like, you know, it's 6.30, the sun's going to set in 15 minutes, and you just got into a bad argument. And you're like, man, we better wrap this thing up quick because we have 15 minutes and we're sitting against this passage. Let's not take it with that kind of hyper-literalism, okay? Paul is not saying literally the, the, the sunset is the, the terminus, and if you don't figure it out by sunset, you know, you've broken this. No, no, it's a way of speaking. He's saying, listen, by the way, it's, oftentimes if it's late at night, it's a good time not to have one of those discussions, okay? You could probably, well, let's wait till the sun rises tomorrow, we'll deal with this. Here's what he's trying to say. He's saying, don't let anger in relationships fester on and on so that the relationship begins to rot from the inside. So that you're eaten up with bitterness and anger because you just think about it and you turn it over and over in your mind and you begin to seethe with this sense of negativity and anger and rage that is not of God. It becomes a sinful, self-centered anger and that is something we should not be known for. We should regularly put those things to rest and we should repent when our anger becomes sinful. 
There's a reason James said, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because anger, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I will say verse 27, when anger and bitterness festers in a church or a family, Satan takes his seat at that table. You give an opportunity to the devil and, and, and demons when there is sinful anger between Christians. Let's think about the church. When there is sinful anger between believers, Satan finds that to be a great golden opportunity for him to enter in and to cause long-term divisiveness and division in the church when that festers long-term. I mean, you, you've probably seen people, you've talked to people. They literally are still thinking about something minor that was done to them 30 years ago, and they talk about it regularly. Have you seen this? So someone brings up something back when they were a teenager. Now they're, they're, they're in their 50s, and they're recycling a story. I've, I've seen this. I'm just going, wow. You've, you've all heard the phrase, you know, bitterness is when you drink poison and hope the other person dies, right? You've heard that. That, that, is, that is very close to what you're seeing here. This, this is, you, you're, someone can be eaten up with this, and the devil finds that to be a golden opportunity to wreck unity in a local church. How about theft, verses, uh, verse 28? Let the thief no longer steal, that's put off the old self, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's putting on the new self. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's not simply saying, stealing is bad, stop stealing. He's saying positively, work hard. Make some extra money and use it to bless people. Instead of stealing, make money, save money, and use it to bless people with the money that God has graciously given you because it is a wonderful joy. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. There is a joy in that ability to help rather than hurt or steal from others. Uh, verse, verse 29 has to do with our language. Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. That's put off the old self but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That is put on the new self. Now, I, I grant you we've talked about this verse a lot in our church's history because I love this verse, but I'll just say briefly, you believers have an incredible opportunity. You have the ability, by God's grace, to be a means of channeling God's grace right into the ears of other people by your encouragement, by the truth that you speak, by the love that you show, you can actually be a conduit of God's grace flowing through you to the other person, and our very words can be used to impart grace to those who hear. I mean, there's a super, you know, superficial is like, just, you should stop cussing. There's like, there's like a superficial way to look at this. No, think about the incredible blessing you have. You can speak words that impart God's grace to them over the table, over the text message, through the email, on the phone, in person, you can say words when you respond with grace when, when you're wronged, right? When you say, oh, no, it, it's, it, don't, do not worry about it. When, when someone is gracious and, and kind and truthful and they speak even a hard truth, right? Gracious words can be hard words, right? When someone needs to be confronted at a certain time. But when we speak God's grace, we can bless those. We can give God's grace to those around us. What a wonderful opportunity to use our words that way. Verse 30, now some people think this is a separate command. I tend to think this is a motivation for the other commands, but let's look at verse 30. And, I mean, that's connecting us back to what has come before, 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I think this is, yes, it's a command, but I think it's also a motivator. Let the fact that we do not want to grieve God the Holy Spirit be a motivator for the words we speak, the kindness we show, all these things. As a footnote, can't help but mention this. You can't grieve a force or an it. You can only grieve a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is God, the Holy Spirit. And so we do not want to grieve God, the Holy Spirit, by our sinful deeds since He's the one that sealed us for the day of redemption. In chapter 1, it mentions that. Finally, the last one covers a whole lot here. I'll just mention maybe unforgiveness could be the term, but let's read 31 and 32. Here's the putting off part. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Here's the put on. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, this may sound strange. I'm not even sure how to communicate it, but if you ever find yourself tempted to want to sort of subtly, socially punish someone because you don't like what they've said, done, or treated, how they've treated you, you know what I'm talking about here? It's not something that you do that's outwardly obvious. It's just a subtle social punishment. You find some small way at the party or the way you talk to them or what you say or don't say, you find a subtle social way to sort of push back, kind of hit back in a subtle social way. It's very respectable because it's not obvious to anyone else, but the other person can sort of feel it, that sting on that little moment there. I think that's something that Christians do. I would call that one of Jerry Bridges' respectable sins. Do not let our behavior be controlled by this whole, you kind of, I felt like a, you, you did something to me, so I'm going to kind of sting back in a subtle social way that you can sort of feel so you can know that I'm upset about what you did. That should be no part of the Christian life. We should repent of that evil. We don't treat people how they deserve to be treated. Because listen, here's why. The reason why we don't treat people the way they deserve to be treated is because if God treated you and I the way we deserve to be treated, we would all be in eternal trouble. We would face God's eternal judgment, which is just, in hell, the lake of fire, where we would spend all of eternity. But because God has been gracious, He has not treated us the way we deserve. And therefore, even when we are wronged, we must treat others in the church and outside the church far better than they may deserve. We treat them the way God has treated us. Look at the first two verses of chapter 5, and then I will close. Let, let me start in 32, and then I'll read to the beginning of 5. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me give you a brief moment to pray quietly, and then I will close us in prayer, and we will sing together.
Heavenly Father, I pray that as we think about this passage that we would be incredibly grateful for acknowledging what you have saved us from. You saved us from futility of thinking, darkness, alienation from the life of God, spiritual ignorance, hard-heartedness and callousness of heart. You have given us a new heart. You've removed our heart of stone. You've given us a beating heart of flesh. You've put your spirit within us. You've washed us with clean water and cleaned us from all of our uncleanness and our idolatries. Lord, you have put your spirit into our life, and you have transformed our desires. We are far from perfect. We have a whole lot of repenting still to do, but God, I pray that you would intensify the desire for true holiness in all of us. Help us to forgive quickly, to be slow to anger. Help us to be quick to listen. Help us to be teachable and malleable under your word. Get our focus off what is vain and fleeting and futile. Fix our eyes on what is eternal and substantial and never-ending. And God, I pray you would help us to use our words not to curse others, but to bless. Use our words, God, to impart your grace to those who hear us. And I pray that would all be because of the incredible grace that you have lavished on us through Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.